welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Hey there, just me. You're about to listen to another installment of our summer series, which is going to record the entire executive summary report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Obviously, there is a content warning while engaging with this material, and we ask that you please take care. You're going to hear some different voices. Some are new, and some you've heard before. And we give a heartfelt thank you so much to everyone who rallied to record this project with us. Be sure to check the description for relevant links and page numbers so you can actively reference the report while you're listening if need be. And without any further ado, we present to you the Executive Summary Report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Arranging and Blocking Marriages Through the residential schools, Indian Affairs and church officials sought to extend their control into the most intimate aspects of the lives of Aboriginal children. Indian Affairs officials believed that because the department had spent money educating students, it had gained the right to determine whom they married. Government officials feared that if students married someone who had not also been educated at a residential school, they would revert to traditional, quote, uncivilized, unquote, ways. The control of marriage was part of the ongoing policy of forced assimilation. In 1890, Indian Commissioner Hayter Reed criticized Quipel Principal Joseph Huguenard for allowing female students from the Quipel School to marry boys who had not gone to school without first getting Indian Affairs approval. Reed argued, quote, the contention that the parents have the sole right to decide such matters cannot for one moment be admitted, unquote. The government not only encouraged marriage between students, but it also began to make marriage part of the process of getting out of residential school. In his annual report for 1896, Deputy Minister Hayter Reed wrote, quote, it is considered advisable where pupils are advanced in years and considered capable of providing for themselves to bring about a matrimonial alliance, either at the time of being discharged from the school or as soon after as possible, unquote. In other words, the principals were expected to arrange marriages for the older students. Principals regularly reported and celebrated student marriages, and indeed did often arrange them. Reverend P. Classen, principal of the Cooper Island School, reported in 1909 that he had succeeded in, quote, engaging one of our leaving girls with one of our best old boys, unquote. Kamloops School Principal A.M. Carrion reported, quote, It is gratifying to note again that since my last report, two more couples of ex-pupils have been unified in the bonds of holy wedlock. The ex-pupils who marry other ex-pupils are better able to retain the habits of civilized life, which they acquired at the school, unquote. Efforts were also made to block marriages deemed to be unsuitable. In 1895, Indian Agent Magnus Begg told members of the Blackfoot Reserve that, quote, no young man could marry a girl from an industrial or board school without having prepared a house with two rooms and owning cows with the necessary stabling, unquote. In that same year, principals and Indian agents were instructed to seek departmental permission prior to allowing students to marry. Principals continued to arrange marriages into the 1930s. In 1936, the principal of the Roman Catholic School at Onion Lake prepared a list of students who had turned 16 and who he believed should not be discharged. He noted that he insisted on keeping the students since he would, quote, always try to marry them as soon as they leave the school, unquote. He wanted to keep one 18-year-old student in the school until the fall threshing was complete. Then she would be married to a formal pupil. He wanted to keep another 18-year-old until, quote, she gets married during the year, unquote. 
1922, the head of the Presbyterian Church's Winnipeg Committee on Indian Work urged the government to make it, quote, unlawful for a pupil or ex-pupil of the school to marry or be married without the permission of the Indian agent, unquote. The Presbyterians proposed that the children of such unauthorized marriages be denied treaty annuities until they reach the age of 21 and be prohibited from attending school. Although the measure was not adopted, it is reflective of the church's lack of respect for the autonomy of Aboriginal people. Food, quote, always hungry, unquote. In his memoir of his years as a student at the Mount Elgin School in southern Ontario in the early 20th century, Anas Montour wrote that the boys, quote, were always hungry. Grub was the beginning and end of all conversations, unquote. According to Eleanor Brass, the dinners at the File Hills Saskatchewan School consisted of, quote, watery soup with no flavor and never any meat, unquote. One winter, it seemed to her that they fish every day. In fair weather, the boys would trap gophers and squirrels and roast them over open fires to supplement their meager diets. Sometimes they would share these treats with the girls at the school. Mary John, who attended the Fraser Lake British Columbia School, recalled that the meals were dull and monotonous, a regular diet of porridge interspersed with boiled barley and beans and bread covered with lard. Weeks might go by without any fish or meat. Sugar and jam were reserved for special occasions. A former student of the Hay River School in the Northwest Territories recalled that in the years following the First World War, he, quote, didn't see jam from the time I got off the boat to the time I got back on to come back down, unquote. Another student from that school recalled a constant diet of fish, quote, they would boil it up real good until the meat falls away, the bones and scales all floating around, then mix in flour and serve it up. I won't use flour for my dogs because there's not much good in it, unquote. The reports of government inspectors confirmed these student memoirs. An 1895 report on an inspection of the Middle Church School concluded, quote, The, quote, bill of fare, unquote, is plain. I believed it to be barely sufficient for the older pupils, who have now, at 15 to 18 years of age, larger appetites than they will have when older, unquote. In 1918, Indian agent John Smith inspected the Kamloops School and reported his, quote, suspicion that the vitality of the children is not sufficiently sustained from a lack of nutritious food or enough of the same for vigorous growing children, unquote. A local doctor concurred, writing that, quote, for some months past, the food supplied has been inadequate for the needs of the children, unquote. There were some positive assessments, but Indian Affairs official Martin Benson questioned their accuracy. Quote, in almost every instance when meals are mentioned by inspectors, they are said to be well-cooked. I doubt very much whether they ever took a full regulation school meal of bread and dripping or boiled beef and potatoes, unquote. In Benson's opinion, quote, the bill of fare is decidedly monotonous and makes no allowance for peculiarities of taste or constitution, unquote. When funding was cut during the depression of the 1930s, it was the students who paid the price in more ways than one. At the end of the 1930s, it was discovered that the cook at the Presbyterian School at Kenora was actually selling bread to the students at the rate of 10 cents a loaf. When asked if the children got enough to eat at meals, she responded, quote, yes, but they were always hungry, unquote. The Indian agent ordered an end to the practice. The fact that hungry students would be reduced to buying bread to supplement their meals in 1939 highlights the government's failure to provide schools with the resources needed to feed students adequately. Milk was in constant shortage at many schools, in part due to the poor health and small size of the school dairy herds. As late as 1937, disease among the cows at the Kamloops schools had cut milk production by 50%. To the principal's frustration, Ottawa refused to fund the construction of an additional barn, which would have allowed for an increase in milk production and the isolation of sick animals. 
even when the dairy herds were producing satisfactorily, the students did not always get the full benefit. Often, the milk was separated, with the skimmed milk served to the children. The milk fat was turned to butter and cream, which was frequently sold to raise funds for the school. Inspector W. Murison noted in 1925 that the cows at the Elkhorn Manitoba School were producing enough milk for the school, but the students were not getting, quote, the full benefit of this milk as I found that they were making about 30 pounds of butter a week and a great deal of the milk given the children is separated milk, which has not much food value, unquote. In 1942, the federal government issued Canada's official food rules, an early version of the Canada Food Guide. Inspectors quickly discovered that residential school diets did not measure up to the food rules. Dr. L. B. Pett, the head of the federal government's nutrition division, concluded in 1947, on the basis of inspections his staff had done, that, quote, no school was doing a good feeding job, unquote. It was not until the late 1950s that the federal government adopted a residential school food allowance calculated to provide a diet deemed, quote, fully adequate nutritionally, unquote. Even with the increase in funding, schools still had difficulty providing students with adequate meals. A 1966 dietitian's report on Yukon Hall in Whitehorse observed that although the Canada Food Guide requirements were being met, quote, because of the appetite of this age group, the staff are finding 66 cents per day per student is limiting, unquote. In 1969, an official at Coderre Hall in Whitehorse wrote, quote, the 80 cent allotted per student for food is not sufficient. In the North, we find prices sky high, unquote. To cope with the problem, the residents sometimes had to buy, quote, less meat and serve macaroni products, unquote. A November 1970 inspection of the Dauphin Manitoba School noted that, quote, menu appears to be short of the recommended two servings of fruit per day, unquote. In their home communities, many students had been raised on food that their parents had hunted, fished, or harvested. These meals were very different from the European diet served at the schools. This change in diet added to the students' sense of disorientation. Daisy Diamond found the food at residential school to be unfamiliar and unpalatable. Quote, when I was going to Shingwuk, the food didn't taste very good because we didn't have our traditional food there, our moose meat, our bannock, and our berries, unquote. Dwarf Fraser from the Eastern Arctic found it difficult to adjust to the food served in the hostels. Quote, we were eating canned food, beans, peas, red beans. The food was terrible, unquote. Even when traditional foods were prepared, the school cooks made them in ways that were unfamiliar and unappetizing to the students. Ellen Okima, who attended the Fort Albany, Ontario school, had vivid memories of poorly cooked fish served at the schools. The school cook had simply, quote, dumped the whole thing and boiled them like that, just like that, without cleaning them, unquote. Bernard Catchaway recalled that in the 1960s at the Pine Creek, Manitoba school, quote, we had to eat all our food even though we didn't like it. There was a lot of times there I had seen other students that threw up and they were forced to eat their own, their own vomit, unquote. Bernard Sutherland recalled students at the Fort Albany School being forced to eat food that they had vomited. Quote, I saw in person how the children eat their vomit when they happened to be sick and they threw up while eating, unquote. These abuses led in 1999 to the conviction of Anna Wesley, a former staff member of the Fort Albany School, on three charges of administering a noxious substance. Some schools did make allowances for traditional foods. Simon Awashish recalled being allowed to trap for food while attending the Amos Quebec school. Quote, when we brought in hares, we were asked if there was some members of our nation that came to work in the kitchen, and we asked them to cook the hare for us in the traditional Atameg way in order to keep some sort of contact with our traditional food that we had before, before we were separated from our community, unquote. 
Students who spoke of hunger also spoke of their efforts to improve their diet secretly. Woody Elias recalled being hungry all the time at the Anglican school in Aklavik. Quote, once in a while, we go raid the cellar and you can't call that stealing. That was our food. Unquote. When Dorothy Noli helped out in the Alert Bay School kitchen, she and her co-workers would eat bread as they sliced it. Quote, kids would come to me and ask me for bread and I'd sneak it to them. Unquote. At the Moose Factory School in Ontario, Nellie Trapper said, students, quote, used to steal food, peanut butter, whatever's cooking in a pot. There were big pots in there. I remember taking figs from that pot, unquote. Complaints about the limited, poorly prepared, monotonous diet were intensified by the fact that at many schools, the students knew the staff members were being served much better fare than they had. At the school she attended in Saskatchewan, Inez Dieter said, quote, the staff used to eat like kings, kings and queens, unquote. Like many students, she said she used the opportunity of working in the staff dining room to help herself to leftovers. Quote, I'd steal that and I'd eat and I'd feel real good, unquote. Gladys Price recalled how at the Sandy Bay School in Manitoba, the quote, priests ate the apples, we ate the peelings. That is what they fed us. We never ate bread. They were stingy them, their own, their own baking, unquote. When Frances Tate was given a position in the staff dining room, she said she thought she had, quote, died and gone to heaven, quote, because even eating their leftovers were better than what we got, unquote. Hazel Bitternose, who attended schools in Lestock and Coppell, said she enjoyed working in the priest's dining room, quote, they had some good food there and I used to sneak some food and able to feed myself good there, so that's why I like to work there, unquote. The federal government knowingly chose not to provide schools with enough money to ensure that kitchens and dining rooms were properly equipped, that cooks were properly trained, and most significantly, that food was purchased in sufficient quantity and quality for growing children. It was a decision that left thousands of Aboriginal children vulnerable to disease. Health, quote, for sickness, conditions at this school are nothing less than criminal, unquote. The number of students who died at Canada's residential schools is not likely ever to be known in full. The most serious gap in information arises from the incompleteness of the documentary record. Many records have simply been destroyed. According to a 1935 federal government policy, school returns could be destroyed after five years and reports of accidents after 10 years. This led to the destruction of 15 tons of waste paper between 1936 and 1944. 200,000 Indian Affairs files were destroyed. Health records were regularly destroyed. For example, in 1957, Indian and Northern Health Services was instructed to destroy, quote, correspondence, re, routine arrangements, re, medical and dental treatments of Indians and Eskimos, such as transportation, escort services, admission to hospital, advice on treatment, requests for treatment, etc., unquote, after a period of two years. Reports by doctors, dentists, and nurses were similarly assigned a two-year retention period. Often, the existing record lacks needed detail. For example, it was not uncommon for principals in their annual reports to state that a specific number of students had died in the previous year, but not to name them. It was not until 1935 that Indian Affairs adopted a formal policy on how deaths at the schools were to be reported and investigated. There can be no certainty that all deaths were, in fact, reported. To Indian Affairs. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada has located reports of student deaths in church records that are not reported in government documents. In some cases, school officials appear not to have recognized a responsibility to report student deaths to provincial vital statistics officials, meaning that these records may also be deficient. As part of its work, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada 
has established a National Residential School Student Death Register. The creation of this register marks the first effort in Canadian history to properly record the number of students who died in residential schools. The register is made up of three sub-registers. One, the Register of Confirmed Deaths of Named Residential School Students, named register. Two, the Register of Confirmed Deaths of Unnamed Residential School Students, bracket, unnamed register, close bracket. And three, the Register of Deaths that Require Further Investigation to determine if they should be placed on either the named or unnamed register. A January 2015 statistical analysis of the named register for the period from 1867 to 2000 identified 2,040 deaths. The same analysis of a combination of the named and unnamed registers identified 3,201 reported deaths. The greatest number of these deaths, 1,328 on the named register, and 2,434 on the named and unnamed registers took place prior to 1940. Graph 3 shows the overall death rate per 1,000 students for the residential schools during this period. Figures are based on information in the combined named and unnamed registers. This graph suggests that the peak of the health crisis in the schools occurred in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It also shows that the death rate remained high until the 1950s. The death rates for Aboriginal children in the residential schools were far higher than those experienced by members of the general Canadian population. Graph 4 compares the death rate per 1,000 of the general population of Canadian children aged 5 to 14 with the death rates per 1,000 of the named register and the named and unnamed registers combined. Given the limitations in Statistic Canada's historical data, the death rates are provided as five-year averages. As can be seen, until the 1950s, Aboriginal children in residential schools died at a far higher rate than school-aged children in the general population. It is only in the 1950s that the residential school death rates declined to a level comparable to that of the general school-age population. As late as the 1941-45 period, the named and unnamed combined residential school death rate was 4.90 times higher than the general death rate. In the 1960s, even though the residential school death rates were much lower than their historic highs, they were still double those of the general school-age population. In nearly 50% of the cases, both in the named and unnamed registers, there is no recorded cause of death. From those cases where the cause of death was reported, it is clear that until the 1950s, the schools were the sites of an ongoing tuberculosis crisis. Tuberculosis accounted for just less than 50% of the recorded deaths, 46.2% for the named register, and 47% for the named and unnamed registers combined. The tuberculosis death rate remained high until the 1950s. Its decline coincides with the introduction of effective drug treatment. The next most frequently recorded causes of death were influenza, 9.2% on the named register, and 9.1% of the deaths on the combined named and unnamed registers. Pneumonia, 6.9% on the named register and 9.1% of the deaths on the combined named and unnamed registers. And general lung disease, 3.4% on the named register and 5.5% of the deaths on the combined name and unnamed registers. Graph 5 shows the residential school tuberculosis death rate. Figures are based on information in the combined named and unnamed registers. The tuberculosis health crisis in the schools was part of a broader Aboriginal health crisis that was set in motion by colonial policies that separated Aboriginal people from their land, thereby disrupting their economies and their food supplies. 
This crisis was particularly intense on the Canadian prairies. Numerous federal government policies contributed to the undermining of Aboriginal health. During a period of starvation, rations were withheld from bands in an effort to force them to abandon the lands that they had initially selected for their reserves. In making the treaties, the government had promised to provide assistance to First Nations to allow them to make a transition from hunting to farming. This aid was slow in coming and inadequate on arrival. Restrictions in the Indian Act made it difficult for First Nations farmers to sell their produce or borrow money to invest in technology. Reserve land was often agriculturally unproductive. Reserve housing was poor and crowded. Sanitation was inadequate and access to clean water was limited. Under these conditions, tuberculosis flourished. Those people it did not kill were often severely weakened and likely to succumb to measles, smallpox, and other infectious diseases. For Aboriginal children, the relocation to residential schools was generally no healthier than their homes had been on the reserves. In 1897, Indian Affairs official Martin Benson reported that the industrial schools in Manitoba and the Northwest Territories had been, quote, hurriedly constructed of poor materials, badly laid out, without due provision for lighting, heating, or ventilation, unquote. In addition, drainage was poor and water and fuel supplies were inadequate. Conditions were not any better in the church-built boarding schools. In 1904, Indian Commissioner David Laird echoed Benson's comments when he wrote that the sites for the boarding schools on the prairies seemed, quote, to have been selected without proper regard for either water supply or drainage. I need not mention any school in particular, but I have urged improvement in several cases in regard to fire protection, unquote. Students' health depended on clean water, good sanitation, and adequate ventilation, but little was done to improve the poor living conditions that were identified at the beginning of the 20th century. In 1940, R.A. Hoey, who had served as the Indian Affairs Superintendent of Welfare and Training since 1936, wrote a lengthy assessment of the condition of the existing residential schools. He concluded that many schools were, quote, in a somewhat dilapidated condition, unquote, and had, quote, become acute fire hazards, unquote. He laid responsibility for the, quote, condition of our schools generally, unquote, upon their, quote, faulty construction, unquote. This construction, he said, had failed to meet, quote, the minimum standards in the construction of public buildings, particularly institutions for the education of children, unquote. By 1940, the government had concluded that future policy should concentrate on the expansion of day schools for First Nations children. As a result, many of the existing residential school buildings were allowed to continue to deteriorate. A 1967 brief from the National Association of Principals and Administrators of Indian Residences, which included principals of both Catholic and Protestant schools, concluded, quote, In the years that the churches have been involved in the administration of the schools, there has been a steady deterioration in essential services. Year after year, complaints, demands, and requests for improvements have, in the main, fallen upon deaf ears, unquote. When E.A. Cote, the deputy minister responsible for Indian Affairs, met with church and school representatives to discuss the brief, he told them that only emergency repairs would be undertaken at schools that Indian Affairs intended to close. The badly built and poorly maintained schools constituted serious fire hazards. Defective firefighting equipment exacerbated the risk and schools were fitted with inadequate and dangerous fire escapes. Lack of access to safe fire escapes led to high death tolls in fires at the Beauville and Cross Lake schools. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada has determined that at least 53 schools were destroyed by fire. There were at least 170 additional recorded fires. At least 40 students died in residential school fires. The harsh discipline and jail-like nature of life in the schools meant that many students sought to run away. To prevent this, 
many schools deliberately ignored government instructions in relation to fire drills and fire escapes. These were not problems only of the late 19th or early 20th centuries. Well into the 20th century, recommendations for improvements went unheeded, and dangerous and forbidden practices were widespread and entrenched. In the interest of cost containment, the Canadian government placed the lives of students and staff at risk for 130 years. The schools were not only fire traps, they were also incubators of disease. Rather than helping combat the tuberculosis crisis in the broader Aboriginal community, the poor condition of the schools served to intensify it. The 1906 annual report of Dr. Peter Bryce, the Chief Medical Officer for Indian Affairs, observed that, quote, the Indian population of Canada has a mortality rate of more than double that of the whole population, and in some provinces, more than three times, unquote. Tuberculosis was a prevalent cause of death. He described a cycle of disease in which infants and children were infected at home and sent to residential schools where they infected other children. The children infected in the schools were, quote, sent home when too ill to remain at school or because of being a danger to other scholars and have conveyed the disease to houses previously free, unquote. The following year, Bryce published a damning report on the conditions of prairie boarding schools. In an age when fresh air was seen as being central to the successful treatment of tuberculosis, he concluded that, with only a few exceptions, the ventilation of the schools was, quote, extremely inadequate, unquote. He found the school staff and even physicians inclined to question or minimize the dangers of infection from scrofulous or consumptive pupils. Scrofula and consumption were alternate names for types of tuberculosis, and nothing less than peremptory instructions as to how to deal with cases of disease existing in the schools will eliminate this ever-present danger of infection. He gave the principals a questionnaire to complete regarding the health condition of their former students. The responses from 15 schools revealed that, quote, of a total of 1,537 pupils reported upon, nearly 25% are dead. Of one school, with an absolutely accurate statement, 69% of ex-pupils are dead, and that everywhere the almost invariable cause of death given is tuberculosis, unquote. He drew particular attention to the fate of the 31 students who had been discharged from the File Hill School. Nine were in good health, and 22 were dead. The extent of the health crisis was so severe that some people within the federal government and the Protestant churches became convinced that the only solution was to close the schools and replace them with day schools. However, the Indian Affairs Minister of the Day, Frank Oliver, refused to enact the plan without the support of the churches involved. The plan foundered for lack of Roman Catholic support. During the same period, Bryce recommended that the federal government take over all the schools and turn them into sanatoria under his control. This plan was rejected because it was viewed as being too costly and it was thought that it would have met with church opposition. Instead of closing schools or turning them into sanatoria, the government's major response to the health crisis was the negotiation in 1910 of a contract between Indian Affairs and the churches. This contract increased the grants to the schools and imposed a set of standards for diet and ventilation. The contract also required that students not be admitted, quote, until, where practicable, a physician has reported that the child is in good health, unquote. As noted earlier, although the contract led to improvements in the short term, inflation quickly eroded the benefit of the increasing grants. The situation was worsened by the cuts to the grants that were repeatedly imposed during the Great Depression of the 1930s. The underfunding created by the cuts guaranteed that students would be poorly fed, clothed, and housed. As a result, children were highly susceptible to tuberculosis, and because the government was slow to put in place policies that would have prohibited the admission of children with tuberculosis and ineffective in enforcing such policies once they were developed, healthy children became infected. 
as late as the 1950s, at some schools, pre-admission medical examinations appear to have been perfunctory, ineffective, or non-existent. In the long run, the 1910 contract proved to be no solution for the tuberculosis crisis. The schools often lacked adequate facilities for the treatment of sick children. In 1893, Indian Affairs Inspector T.B. Wadsworth reported that at the Capel School, the, quote, want of an infirmary is still very much felt, unquote. Those infirmaries that existed were often primitive. On an 1891 visit to the Battleford School, Indian Commissioner Hayter Reed concluded that the hospital ward was in such poor shape that they had been obliged to move the children in it to the staff sitting room. According to Reed, quote, the noise as well as the bad smells come from the lavatory underneath, unquote. Proposals to construct a small hospital at the Red Deer School in 1901 were not implemented. There were also reports of inadequate isolation facilities at the Regina School, 1901, the Anglican School in Onion Lake, Saskatchewan, 1921, the Mission British Columbia School, 1924, and the Munici Ontario School, 1935. When diphtheria broke out at Duck Lake, Saskatchewan in 1909, the nine students who fell ill were placed in a, quote, large isolated house, unquote. Even though the 1910 contract required all schools to have hospital accommodation to prevent the spread of infectious disease, many schools continued to be without a proper infirmary. The 1918 global influenza epidemic left four children dead at their Red Deer, Alberta school. When the influenza epidemic subsided, Principal J.F. Woodsward complained to Indian Affairs, quote, for sickness, conditions at this school are nothing less than criminal. We have no isolation ward and no hospital equipment of any kind, unquote. The Roman Catholic principals petitioned the federal government for the establishment of sick rooms under the supervision of a competent nurse at each school in 1924. At the same time, they objected to the sanitation inspection of the schools by government-appointed nurses since they recommended changes, quote, leading to the transformation of our schools into hospitals or sanatoriums, unquote. There were also regular reports that schools could not afford to hire needed nursing staff. Indian Affairs officials continued to be critical of the quality of care provided by school infirmaries at the end of the 1950s. Complaints from principals make it clear that into the late 1960s, there were still severe limitations on the range of health services being provided to residential school students. General Aboriginal health care was never a priority for the Canadian government. Tuberculosis among Aboriginal people largely was ignored unless it threatened the general Canadian population. In 1937, Dr. H. W. McGill, the Director of Indian Affairs, sent out an instruction that Indian health care services, quote, must be restricted to those required for the safety of limb, life, or essential function, unquote. Hospital care was to be limited, spending on drugs was cut in half, and sanatoria and hospital treatment for chronic tuberculosis were eliminated. The high death rates led many parents to refuse to send their children to residential school. In 1897, Kapapa Kowakachin, also known as Tom, was deposed from his position as a headman of the White Bear Reserve in what is now Saskatchewan for his vocal opposition to residential schools. In making his case for a school on the reserve, he pointed to the death rate at the Quapel Industrial School, adding, quote, Our children are not strong. Many of them are sick most of the time. Many of the children sent from this reserve to the schools have died. Death casts a long shadow over many residential school memories. Louise Moen attended the Coppell School in the early 20th century. She recalled one year when tuberculosis was, quote, on the rampage in that school. There was a death every month on the girl's side, and some of the boys went also, unquote. Of his years at the Roman Catholic School in Onion Lake, 
Joseph Dion recalled, quote, My schoolmates and I were not long in concluding that the lung sickness was fatal. Hence, as soon as we saw or heard of someone spitting blood, we immediately branded him for the grave. He had consumption. He had to die. Unquote. Simon Baker's brother, Jim, died from spinal meningitis at the Lytton British Columbia School. Quote, I used to hear him crying at night. I asked the principal to take him to the hospital. He didn't. After about two weeks, my brother was in so much pain, he was going out of his mind. I pleaded with the principal for days to take him to a doctor, unquote. Ray Silver said that he always blamed the Alberni school for the death of his brother, Dalton. Quote, he was a little guy laying in the bed in the infirmary, dying, and I didn't know till he died. You know, that's, that was the end of my education, unquote. The death of a child often prompted parents to withdraw the rest of their children from a school. One former student said her father came to the school when her sister became ill at the Anglican school at Aklavik, Northwest Territories. Quote, he came upstairs and there we were. He cried over us. He took me home. He put her in a hospital and she died. Unquote. The high death rates in the schools were, in part, a reflection of the high death rates among the Aboriginal community in general. Indian Affairs officials often tried to portray these rates as simply the price the Aboriginal people had to pay as part of the process of becoming civilized. In reality, these rates were the price they paid for being colonized. Aboriginal livelihoods were based on access to land. Colonization disrupted that access and introduced new illnesses to North America. Colonial policies helped wipe out food sources and confine Aboriginal people to poorly located reserves with inadequate sanitation and shelter. The schools could have served as institutions to help counter these problems. To do that, however, they would have had to have been properly constructed, maintained, staffed, and supplied. Government officials were aware of this. They were also aware that death rates among students at residential schools were disproportionately high. It would be wrong to say the government did nothing about this crisis. The 1910 contract did provide a substantial funding increase to the schools, but the federal government never made the type of sustained investment in Aboriginal health in either the communities or the schools that could have addressed this crisis, which continues to the present. The non-Aboriginal tuberculosis death rate declined before the introduction of life-saving drugs. It was brought down by improvements in diet, housing, sanitation, and medical attention. Had such measures been taken by the federal government earlier, they would have reduced both the Aboriginal death rates and the residential school students' death rates. By failing to take adequate measures that had been recommended to it, the federal government blighted the health of generations of Aboriginal people. Burial Policy Many of the early schools were part of larger church mission centers that might include a church, a dwelling for the missionaries, a farm, a sawmill, and a cemetery. The mission cemetery might serve as a place of burial for students who died at school, members of the local community, and the missionaries themselves. For example, the cemetery at the Roman Catholic St. Mary's Mission, near Mission, British Columbia, was intended originally for priests and nuns from the mission as well as for students from the residential school. During the influenza pandemic of 1918-19, many of the schools and missions were overwhelmed. At the Fort St. James School and Mission in British Columbia, the dead were buried in a common grave. At the Red Deer School, four students who died there were buried two to a grave to save costs. In some cases, student and staff graves were treated differently. At the Spanish Ontario School, the graves of staff members were marked with headstones that in the case of former priests and nuns provided name and date of birth and death. The burial spots of students were identified only by plain white crosses. The general Indian Affairs policy was to hold the schools responsible for burial expenses when a student died at school. The school generally determined the location and nature of that burial. 
Parental requests to have children's bodies returned home for burial were generally refused as being too costly. In her memoirs, Eleanor Brass recalled how the body of one boy, who hung himself at the File Hills School in the early 20th century, was buried on the Pipicasis Reserve, even though his parents lived on the Carlisle Reserve. As late as 1958, Indian Affairs refused to return the body of a boy who had died at a hospital in Edmonton to his northern home community in the Yukon. The reluctance to pay the cost of sending the bodies of children from residential schools home for burial ceremonies continued into the 1960s. Initially, for example, Indian Affairs was initially unwilling to pay to send the body of 12-year-old Charlie Wenjack back to his parents' home community in Ogoki, Ontario in 1966. When Charles Hunter drowned in 1974 while attending the Fort Albany School, it was decided, without consultation with his parents, to bury him in Musani rather than send him home to Piwanak near Hudson Bay. It was not until 2011, after significant public efforts made on his behalf by his sister Joyce, who had never got to meet her older brother, that Charles Hunter's body was exhumed and returned to Piwanak for a community burial. The costs were covered by funds that the Toronto Star raised from its readership. A school closing might mean the cemetery would be left unattended. When the Battleford School closed in 1914, Principal E. Matheson reminded Indian Affairs that there was a school cemetery that contained the bodies of 70 to 80 individuals, most of whom were former students. He worried that unless the government took steps to care for the cemetery, it would be overrun by stray cattle. In short, throughout the system's history, Children who died at school were buried in school or mission cemeteries, often in poorly marked graves. The closing of the schools has led, in many cases, to the abandonment of these cemeteries. Discipline, quote, too suggestive of the old system of flogging criminals, unquote. When Indian agent D.L. Clink returned a runaway student to the Red Deer Industrial School in 1895, he noted that the boy's head was bruised from where a teacher had hit him with a stick. The school principal, John Nelson, told Clink that he, quote, had been severe with him before, but he would be more severe now, unquote. Worried that if he, quote, left the boy, he would be abused, unquote, Clint took the boy away from the school. He also recommended to Indian Affairs that the teacher who had struck the student be dismissed and brought up on charges, since, quote, his actions in this and other cases would not be tolerated in a white school for a single day in any part of Canada, unquote. Clink's report led Indian Affairs Deputy Minister Hayter Reed to direct his staff, quote, Instructions should be given, if not already sent, to the principals of the various schools, that children are not to be whipped by anyone save the principal, and even when such a course is necessary, great discretion should be used, and they should not be struck on the head or punished so severely that bodily harm might ensue. The practice of corporal punishment is considered unnecessary as a general measure of discipline, and should only be resorted to for very grave offenses and as a deterrent example. Unquote. Reed's instruction underlines a number of the recurrent problems with the Indian Affairs approach to discipline in residential schools. First, Reed, who had previously been the Indian Commissioner in Western Canada, did not know whether there were regulations dealing with school discipline. Second, his directive is vague. While it indicates where students should not be struck, it does not specify where they could be struck or place limits on what students could be struck with, and neither are there limits on the number of blows. Third, it is not clear that these instructions were ever issued to the principals. If they were, they were soon lost and forgotten. In later years, when conflicts arose over discipline at the schools, Indian Affairs officials made no reference to the policy. In 1920, Canon S. Gould, 
the General Secretary of the Missionary Society of the Church of England in Canada, asked Deputy Minister Campbell Scott, quote, is corporal punishment for disciplinary purposes recognized or permitted in the Indian boarding schools? Question mark, unquote. He noted that whether or not it was permitted, he imagined that it was applied in every residential school in the country. The first and only evidence of a nationwide discipline policy for residential schools that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada has been able to locate in the documents reviewed to date was issued in 1953. The failure to establish and enforce a national policy on discipline meant that students were subject to disciplinary measures that would not, as Klink noted in 1895, be tolerated in schools for non-Aboriginal children. Four years after Reed asked his staff to issue instructions on corporal punishment, Indian Commissioner David Laird reported that several children had been, quote, too severely punished, unquote, at the Middle Church School. Quote, strappings on the bare back, unquote, he wrote, was, quote, too suggestive of the old system of flogging criminals, unquote. Corporal punishment was often coupled with public humiliation. In December 1896, in British Columbia, the Copper Island School's acting principal gave two boys, quote, several lashes in the presence of the pupils, unquote, for sneaking into the girls' dormitory at night. When, in 1934, the principal of the Shibanakati School could not determine who had stolen money and chocolates from a staff member, he had the suspects thrashed with a seven-thonged strap and then placed on bread-and-water diets. Some schools had a specific room set aside to serve as a, quote, punishment room, unquote. After a 1907 inspection of the Mohawk Institution in Brantford, the Ontario Inspector for Indian Agencies, J.G. Ramsden, reported, quote, I cannot say that I was favorably impressed with the sight of two prison cells in the boys' playhouse. I was informed, however, that there were for pupils who ran away from the institution, confinement being for a week at a time when pupils returned, unquote. In 1914, a father successfully sued the Mohawk Institute principal for locking his daughter in a cell for three days on what was described as, quote, a water diet, unquote. Boys at the Anglican school in Brockett, Alberta, were chained together as punishment for running away in 1920. At the Glacken, Alberta school, a principal was accused of shackling a boy to his bed and beating him with a quirt, a riding whip, until his back bled. The principal admitted to having beaten the boy with the whip, but denied breaking the boy's skin. Abusive punishment often prompted children to run away. The father, the father of Duncan Sticks, a boy who died from exposure after running away from the Williams Lake School in British Columbia, told a coroner's inquest in 1902 that in the past, his son had run away because he had been quote, beaten with a quirt, unquote. A boy who ran away from the Anglican school in the past after being severely beaten by the principal nearly died of exposure. The violent nature of the discipline at the schools came as a shock to students. Isabel Whitford said that prior to coming to the Sandy Bay School, she had never been physically disciplined. Quote, all my dad have to do was raise his voice and we knew what he meant. So when I first got hit by the nuns, it was really devastating because how can they hit me when my parents didn't hit me, you know, unquote. Rachel Chagasson said that at the Fort Albany School, quote, I saw violence for the first time. I would see kids getting hit, sometimes in the classrooms, a yardstick was being used to hit, unquote. Fred Brass said that his years at the Roman Catholic School at Camsac, Saskatchewan, were, quote, the hellish years of my life. You know, to be degraded by our so-called educators, to be beat by these people that were supposed to have been there to look after us, to teach us right from wrong. It makes me wonder now today, a lot of times I ask that question, who was right and who was wrong, unquote. According to Geraldine Bob, the staff members at the Kamloops school she attended were not able to control their temper 
once they began to punish the student. Quote, they would just start beating you and lose control and hurl you against the wall, throw you on the floor, kick you, punch you, unquote. It was a common practice to shave the heads of students who ran away. William Antoine recalled that at the Spanish Ontario school, this was done in front of the other students. Quote, they got all the boys to look at what was happening to this boy, what they were doing to him because he ran away. They cut all his hair off and they pulled, pulled his pants down and he was kneeling on the floor, holding onto the chair, Unquote. Eva Simpson said that at the Catholic school in the past, her cousin's head was shaved for running away. Many students spoke of teachers punishing them by pulling their ears. At Sioux Lookout, Dorothy Ross said, quote, One time me and this other girl were, we were, we were fooling around, we were teasing each other in our own language, we got, I got caught. She pulled my ear so hard, unquote. Archie Hyacinth could recall that in the classrooms of the Roman Catholic school in Kenora, quote, Every time we didn't listen, they would tug us behind the ear or behind the neck or on the elbows, unquote. Jonas Granjam recalled how the nun in charge of the boys' dormitory at the Roman Catholic school in Aklavik in the Northwest Territories, would, quote, grab our ear and twist it, unquote. Dolores Adolf said that the discipline she received at the mission school impaired her hearing. Joseph Wabino said that at the Fort Albany, Ontario school, the staff would hit students with a one-inch thick board. Noel Star Blanket recalled being constantly, quote, slapped on the side of the head, unquote, at the Quapel school. One teacher struck him in the face and broke his nose. Mervyn Muristy said that at the Beauville, Saskatchewan school, Boys who were caught throwing snowballs were punished with blows to their hands from the blade of a hockey stick. As a punishment, Nellie Trapper, who attended the Moose Factory Ontario School in the 1950s, was assigned to, quote, scrubbing the stair, the stairwell, with a toothbrush, me and this other girl. Like, I don't remember what I did wrong, but that was something that I won't forget. I remember sitting on the steps, and she, our supervisor, was standing there, watching us, unquote. Former students also spoke of how, in winter, they might be forced to stand or sit inadequately clothed in the snow as a form of punishment. It was not uncommon for residential school students, traumatized by being placed in such a harsh and alien environment, to wet their beds. These students were subjected to humiliating punishments. Wendy LaFond said that at the Prince Albert Saskatchewan School, quote, if we wet our beds, we were made to stand in the corner in our pissy clothes, not allowed to change, unquote. Don Willie recalled that students who wet their beds were publicly humiliated at the Alert Bay School. Quote, and they used to, they used to line up the wet bed, bedwetters, and line them up in the morning and braid them through, braid them through breakfast, the breakfast area, pretty much to shame them, unquote. Policies that were seen as being unacceptable in the early 20th century were still in place in the 1960s. Many students compared residential schools to jails. Some spoke of being locked up in the dormitories, room closets, basements, and even crawl spaces. In 1965, Students who ran away from the Presbyterian school in Kenora were locked up with just a mattress on the floor and put on a bread and milk diet. Students were being locked up in what was referred to as the, quote, counseling, unquote, room at the Poplar Hill Ontario School in the 1980s. Despite the fact that Indian Affairs had given orders to abandon the practice, students were still having their hair cropped into the 1970s. In the 1990s, students at the Gordons Saskatchewan School were still being struck and pushed into lockers and walls by one staff member. The failure to develop, implement, and monitor effective discipline sent an unspoken message that there were no real limits on what could be done to Aboriginal children within the walls of a residential school. The door has been opened early to an appalling level of physical and sexual abuse of students and it remained open throughout the existence of the system. Abuse, quote, and he did awful things to me, unquote. 
From the 19th century onwards, the government and churches were well aware of the risk that staff might sexually abuse residential school students. As early as 1886, Jean Leroux, who worked as a translator for Indian Affairs and a recruiter for Roman Catholic schools in Alberta, was accused of sexually abusing boys in his care. The officials responsible for the schools recognized that his actions were not appropriate. Despite this, there is no record of a criminal investigation being carried out at the time. When new allegations against Thoreau emerged in 1891, he was allowed to resign. In dealing with the matter, Indian Affairs Deputy Minister Lawrence Van Conan hoped, quote, it would not be necessary to state the cause which led to the same resignation, unquote. When it came to taking action on the abuse of Aboriginal children, early on, Indian Affairs and the churches placed their own interests ahead of the children in their care and then covered up that victimization. It was cowardly behavior. This set the tone for the way the churches and government would treat the sexual abuse of children for the entire history of the residential school system. Complaints often were ignored. In some cases where allegations were made against a school principal, the only measure that Indian Affairs took was to contact the principal. In at least one case, Indian Affairs officials worked with school officials to frustrate a police investigation into abuse at a school. When attempting to return some runaway boys to the Copper Island School in 1939, British Columbia Provincial Police officers concluded that there was a good reason to believe the boys had run away because they were sexually abused at the school. The police launched an investigation and refused to return the boys to the school. When Indian Affairs officials finally investigated, they concluded that the allegations had merit. However, to protect the school's reputation, the local Indian Affairs official advised the suspected abusers to leave the province, allowing them to avoid prosecution. Nothing was done for the students who had been victimized or for their parents. These patterns persisted into the late 20th century. Officials continued to dismiss Aboriginal reports of abuse. In some cases, staff members were not fired even after being convicted of assaulting a student. Complaints were improperly investigated. For example, charges of sexual impropriety made against the principal of the Gordon School were investigated by a school staff member in 1956. Church officials failed to report cases of abuse to Indian Affairs and Indian Affairs failed to report cases of abuse to families. It was not until 1968 that Indian Affairs began to compile and circulate a list of former staff members who were not to be hired at other schools without the approval of officials in Ottawa. The churches and the government remained reluctant to take matters to the police. As a result, prosecutions were rare. In the documents it has reviewed, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada has identified over 40 successful convictions of former residential school staff members who sexually or physically abused students. Most of these prosecutions were the result of the determination of former students to see justice done. The full extent of the abuse that occurred in the schools is only now coming to light. As of January 31, 2015, the Independent Assessment Process, IAP, established under the Indian Residential Schools Settlement Agreement, IRSSA, had received 37,000 951 claims for injuries resulting from physical and sexual abuse at residential schools. The IAP is a mechanism to compensate former students for sexual and physical abuse experienced at the schools and the harms that arose from the assaults. By the end of 2014, the IAP had resolved 30,939 of those claims, awarding $2,690,000,000 in compensation. The Common Experience Payment CEP, established under URSA, provided compensation to individuals who attended a school on the URSA's approved list of schools. The CEP recognized the claims of 78,748 former residential school students. 
although claims for compensation under the IAP could be made by non-residential school students who were abused at the schools. The vast majority of IAP claims were made by former residential school students. The number of claims for compensation for abuse is equivalent to approximately 48% of the number of former students who were eligible to make such claims. This number does not include those former students who died prior to May 2005. As the numbers demonstrate, the abuse of children was rampant. From 1958, when it first opened, until 1979, there was never a year in which Grolier Hall in Inuvik did not employ at least one dormitory supervisor who would later be convicted for sexually abusing children at the school. Joseph Jean-Louis Como, Martin Houston, George McKenzie, and Paul Leroux all worked at Grolier Hall during this period. All were convicted of abusing Grolier Hall students. William Pennison Starr served as director of the Gordons, Saskatchewan residents, from 1968 until 1984. Prior to that, he worked at a series of schools in Alberta and Quebec. In 1993, he was convicted of 10 counts of sexually assaulting Gordon's school students. Arthur Plint worked as a boy supervisor at the Alberni Residential School for two five-year periods between 1948 and 1968. In 1995, he pleaded guilty to 18 counts of indecent assault. In sentencing him to 11 years in jail, Justice D.A. Hogarth described Plint as, quote, a sexual terrorist, unquote. Physical abuse and sexual abuse often were intertwined. Jean-Pierre Bellemare, who attended the Amos Quebec School, spoke for many students when he told the commission that he had been subjected to, quote, physical violence, verbal violence, touchings, everything that comes with it, unquote. Andrew Yellowback was, quote, sexually, physically, emotionally, and mentally abused, unquote, at the Cross Lake Manitoba School for eight years. There was no single pattern of abuse. Students of both sexes reported assaults from staff members of both the opposite sex and the same sex as themselves. First-year students, traumatized by separation from their parents and the harsh and alien regime of the school, were particularly vulnerable to abusive staff members who sought to win their trust through what initially appeared to be simple kindness. In some cases, this might involve little more than extra treats from the school canteen. This favoritism, however, was often the prelude to a sexual assault that left the students scared and confused. Many students spoke of having been raped at school. These were moments of terror. Josephine Sutherland was cornered by one of the lay brothers in the Fort Albany School garage. Quote, I couldn't call for help, I couldn't, and he did awful things to me. Unquote. Other students recalled being assaulted in the church confessional. A student in the change room would suddenly have a bag pulled over his head. The abuse could begin with an instruction to report to the shower room in the middle of the night or to take lunch to a staff member's room. An abusive staff person might stalk a student, blocking her or his way, or grope a passing student. Female students spoke of how some staff members took advantage of their innocence, rubbing against them sexually while they were sitting in their laps. Abuse also took the form of voyeuristic humiliation. Some staff insisted on watching the students shower. Some dormitory supervisors used their authority to institute dormitory-wide systems of abuse. Many students spoke of the fear and anxiety that spread across their dormitories in the evenings. They went to bed fearful that they might be called into the supervisor's room. To protect themselves, some students attempted to never be alone. Older students sometimes sought to protect younger ones. Most students came to school with little knowledge or understanding of sexual activity, let alone the types of sexual abuse to which they might be subjected. Abuse left them injured, bewildered, and often friendless, or subject to ridicule by other students. Many students thought they were the only children being abused. This confusion made it difficult for them to describe or report their abuse. Some were told they would face eternal damnation for speaking of what had been done to them. 
Many students fought back against their far larger and more powerful assailants, especially as they got older and stronger. Some succeeded in forcing their tormentors to leave them alone. Many others, such as Florence Waquan, concluded that there was, quote, nothing you can do, unquote. Some students ran away from school in an attempt to escape abuse. Others begged their parents not to return them to school after a break. Some students never reported abuse for fear they would be, not be believed. Other students who did report abuse were told that they were to blame. In other cases, school officials took immediate action when abuse was reported to them, but the rarity of such actions is itself noteworthy. Former students spoke of how betrayed they felt when nothing was done about their complaints. Many simply felt too ashamed to ever speak of the abuse. Family members often refused to believe their children's reports of abuse, intensifying their sense of isolation and pain. This was especially so within families that had adopted Christianity and could not believe that the people of God looking after their children would ever do such things. The impact of abuse was immediate and long-lasting. It destroyed the students' ability to function in the school and led many to turn to self-destructive behaviors. Staff abuse of children created conditions for the student abuse of other students. Every school system has to deal with school bullies, student cliques, and inter-student conflict. It's part of the socialization process. Ideally, corrective lessons in how to treat others well are taught, as well as shown by example. Residential school staff had a responsibility not only to model such behavior, but also to protect students from being victimized. In many cases, they failed to provide that protection. Conflicts between students are not unique to residential schools, but they take on greater significance in a residential school setting, where children cannot turn to adult family members for comfort, support, and redress. The moral influences that a child's home community can exert are also absent. Instead, the children were left vulnerable and unprotected. Residential schools failed to live up to their responsibility to protect students from being victimized by other students. Older or bigger students use force, or the threat of force, to establish their dominance over younger students. In some cases, this dominance was used to coerce younger or smaller students to participate in sexual acts. In other cases, bullies forced vulnerable students to turn over their treats, their food, or their money, or to steal on their behalf. In addition, bullies might simply seek a measure of sadistic satisfaction from beating those who were weaker. Bullies operated individually or in groups. Such groups were often formed initially as a defensive response to the level of violence within the school, but over time would take on their own offensive characteristics. Sometimes such groups not only focused their anger or frustration on other students, but also sought to disrupt the general operation of the school. The fact that Catholic and Protestant church leaders continued to disparage one another's religions throughout this period meant that conflicts between students could also take on religious overtones, particularly in communities with more than one residential school, such as Inuvik in the Northwest Territories. Student victimization of students was an element of the broader abusive and coercive nature of the residential school system. Underfed, poorly housed, and starved for affection, students often formed groups based on age, community of origin, or First Nation. Such groups gave students a measure of identity and status, but also provided protection to their members and dominated more vulnerable students. William Garson recalled that at the Elkhorn Manitoba School, quote, we were always like hiding in the corners, you know, away from any abusement from other older, from older elder boys, students, unquote. Percy Thompson said that at the Hobema School, quote, one bully used to come at me and he'd pretend he was going to talk to me and all of a sudden hit me in the belly. And of course I gag, gag, and he'd laugh his head off and, you know, to see me in such a predicament, unquote. Alice Rupert House spoke of, quote, the cruelty of the other children, unquote, at the Amos Quebec School. Quote, 
it was, you know, like in a jungle. Like in a jungle, you don't know what's going to come out, but you know you have to watch out, unquote. Albert Elias felt that the classroom at the Anglican school in Aklavik, quote, was the safest place to be in because that's where nobody could beat me up. I dreaded recesses and lunches and after school, I dreaded those times, unquote. Bullying might start shortly after arrival. In some schools, all new male students were put through a hazing. Dennis Morrison said that each new arrival at the Fort Francis school underwent a beating. Quote, they used to initiate you, like they would beat the hell out of you, the other kids would. It wasn't anybody else, it was the other kids, the older ones, eh? Unquote. Bob Baxter recalled that there were student gangs in the Sioux Lookout School. He was beaten up and knifed on one occasion. He had a vivid memory of people tying him to his bed and throwing hot water over him. Clara Quisess said that at the Fort Albany School in Ontario, older girls would threaten the younger ones with knives. Louisa Bureau recalled that the girls at the Latouk, Quebec School all formed themselves into hostile groups. Quote, we hated each other. So this little gang didn't like the other gang. That's the way at the school. That's what we were taught. Fears and we were scared and I went to hide in what we called the junk room, the junk closet, unquote. A lack of adequate supervision in the schools and residences meant that such domination could give rise to physical and sexual abuse. The assaults ranged from being forced to kiss someone to being forced to simulate a sex act to being raped. In some cases, victims were given small treats to encourage them to be silent. In other cases, they were told they would be killed if they reported the assault. Agnes Moses recalled being molested by older girls at a hostel in northern Canada. Quote, I never quite understood it, and it really wrecked my life. It wrecked my life as a mother, a wife, a woman, and sexuality was a real, it was a dirty word for us. Unquote. The experience of being abused at a British Columbia school by a group of boys left Don Willie distrustful of most people. Quote, the only, only friends I kept after that were my relatives, unquote. Complaints were infrequent as students had good reason not to report their abuse. Some feared that bullies would retaliate if they were reported. Others were ashamed of what had been done to them, and some did not fully understand what had been done to them. Many students feared they would not be believed or would be blamed for somehow bringing the abuse upon themselves. Still, others were further punished when they did tell. So rather than report the abuse, many students chose to fight back, to seek admission into a receptive group, where violence could be fought with violence or to endure the pain in silence. This victimization left many students feeling intensely betrayed, fearful, isolated, and bereft of home teachings and protection. The betrayal by fellow students has contributed significantly to the school's long-term legacy of continuing division and distrust within Aboriginal communities. The residential school system's shameful inability to protect students from such victimization, even from among themselves, represents one of its most significant and least understood failures. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademeyer. Audio engineering done by Anthony Rademeyer. Graphic design by Julie Lundy. Check her out online at julielundyart.com. And music is done by Matt Rademeyer at radandkel.com.